Churches say, come to church and meet with God. Come to church and get to know God. But I wonder how many people, as they go home for dinner, have their thoughts full of God. What do you have your thoughts full of as you go home for dinner? Well, it might be your opinions about what's happened. It might be, was the music good and did the tea taste nice? It might be something better like something you should do from what you've heard preached. That wouldn't be a bad thing. It might be what you're going to have for dinner and what you're doing this afternoon. But I wonder, do people, do you, do I, do we have our thoughts full of God as we go home from church? This morning, I want us to put aside other concerns and focus on God himself. Now, we started last week a new series on the first chapters of Genesis. And the subject in nearly every sentence in Genesis chapter 1 is God. And the subject of the first sentence of the whole Bible is God. And this morning, we're going to think about this first grand sentence that starts the whole Bible... You might want to turn to Genesis 1 verse 1 now, although many of us will just know this sentence anyway. Genesis 1 verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. My purpose this morning is to fill our minds with God because we won't get right who we are or why we're here or what life's about or what we need unless we get this right, who God is. So, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. First of all, we're going to focus on the two words, God created. We're going to take each part of the sentence and focus on a few different words at a time. First of all, God created. Now, why is anything here? Where did everything come from? Why is there something and not nothing? Do you ever think about those questions? I would suggest it's very sensible to think about those questions. Has all this matter, all the particles the universe is made from, has it always been here? If not, then it had a beginning. And I hope you all agree that it it can't be there was just nothing and then it became something. I hope we're all in agreement, nothing doesn't just become something. So who or what made it all? Well, the Bible's answer is simple, yet profound. Verse 1, in the beginning God created. Now people say, oh yes, yes, that's all very well, but then who made God? Heard that? I suspect we've all heard that one, haven't we? Well then, who made God? Well, let's say someone made God. Then you have to ask, who made who or whatever made God? And then, who made that one? And, and we just keep going back and back, don't we? And, well, whichever one made God is, in effect, God. You've just pushed the question back a little further. And the Bible's answer is, no. God has always been. No one made him. He had no beginning. He depends on nothing. He is. In fact, his name, the Lord, means I am. I just am. In other words, you either have to believe in eternal matter, it's just always been there, or an eternal maker, and he's just always been there. Because things don't just come out of nothing, something has been around forever. Can you see that? Something must have been around forever. Is it matter or is it 
maker. Those are your, that's your choice. That's your choice. Something's been around forever because things don't just suddenly appear out of nothing. Is it matter or is it maker? Yesterday, my family were walking around the dreaming spires of Oxford and thankfully the sun came out and it was very nice. And we were with an Oxford student who says there is no God. There is just matter. But he's more logical about it than most. Because he says, well, there's just matter which through physical processes has produced us. And he says that means we're not significant. Don't con yourself. We're just matter. And he says, well, that means there's no such thing as morality. The idea something's morally right or morally wrong, that's just meaningless, isn't it, if there's just matter? There might be some things that work out better for society. There might be some things that work out better for the survival of the species. But morally right or wrong, no, no, no. That's meaningless. He says, well, that means there's no such thing as human responsibility. We don't think that a computer with artificial intelligence has moral responsibility. He says that means our ideas of consciousness and love are illusions. They're just a more complex version of a flower being stimulated to turn towards the sun so it can grow and reproduce. Your ideas of being conscious or of loving someone, they're just a more complex version of that. The flower turns towards the sun so it can grow and reproduce. Do you agree with that Oxford student? (laughs) We hear a no. Are you ready to reject all those things that humans hold dear? But he's right. If there is eternal matter, not an eternal maker. The Bible says there is an eternal maker. The Bible says behind the universe there's not just particles, there's a person. And a person who made life as we know it with significance and, com- and responsibility and morality and consciousness and love and beauty. I don't think you can actually live as if there's just eternal matter. I think however much people say they hold to it, they can't really live as if all those things we hold dear are just illusions. Life forces you, I reckon, to accept there's an eternal maker. And that forces you to think about this eternal maker. So let's think about him a little more. Let's turn to another few words in this sentence. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Let's take the last five words. The heavens and the earth. Now that's the way of saying God created up there and down here. That's what it's saying. I don't think they're of heaven as being like we think of, angels and a throne and God sitting on it. That's one use of the word heaven, but it's not this use. It means up there and down here. Or it's a way of saying God created from A to Z. The Bible was written in Hebrew and that's the way the Hebrews talked. They put two extremes to mean everything in between. He created from A to Z. In other words, it's saying he created everything. Everything there is comes from him. There isn't anything that doesn't originally come from him. Now, this is so mind-boggling, it's hard to know where to start. So let's start with the really small. Let's start with a tiny bacterial cell weighing less than a trillionth of a gram. 
invisible to the naked human eye. And, and that tiny little cell that you couldn't even see is like a miniature factory containing thousands of exquisitely designed pieces of machinery made up of a thousand, a hundred thousand million atoms more complicated than any man-made machine. We started with the really small. Now let's get bigger and imagine that bacterial cell is in the gut of a giant otter. And the giant otter lives on the bank of the river Amazon. A river with, so far discovered, 3,000 species of fish, 40,000 species of plant, 1,300 species of birds, and 100,000 invertebrate species. So far discovered, and there's probably an awful lot more. A river that sends out 200,000 cubic metres of water per second into the Atlantic. Planet Earth is vast, isn't it? And teeming with life. And yet, planet Earth is so small. Do you read notice boards? I do. Don't know if that makes me an anorak, but I find they're quite interesting. And one caught my eye, because it was a notice board for a scale model of the solar system. And it caught my eye, because I saw it said on it, the sun is not only the centre of the solar system, but it could be considered that the sun is the solar system. That's an odd thing to say. Surely the solar system is the sun and all those many planets that go round it. And they have moons going round them. And then there's a few comets whizzing around the place. The the solar system's a lot more than the sun, isn't it? But then the the notice board said, 99.8% of all the matter in the solar system is the sun. (laughs) That That was news to me. Maybe you all knew that already. I didn't. I've only just discovered it. That's amazing. Think of all those planets, including planet Earth, with little us on it. Think of all of those moons going around the planets. Think of all the solar system. And then the sun is so massive, it is 99.8% of everything in the solar system. Wow. So let's go back to the little, the very little. Think of the bacterial cell. And then think of all the species in the Amazon, with many bacteria in them. And then think of the vast oceans and this planet which is so massive to us. And then think how tiny it is compared with the sun. And then think of this. The sun's a pretty ordinary star. One of trillions. And then let's get back to Genesis 1 verse 1. It all came from God. It all came from God. Can you take that in? Easy answer, no. You can't, can you? All this matter, all this energy, all this power, it all came out of God. He didn't get it from somewhere. He didn't put together some things. It all came from him. There is no power in this universe that doesn't originate from him. There is no matter in this universe that doesn't originate from him. Just in terms of stuff, it all came from him. But then think in terms of ideas. All the variety, all the complexity, all the laws, all the principles, all the beauty, all the colours, they all came from God. Now, us humans are good at copying, aren't we? 
And that's not a bad thing. In fact, it's a very good thing. Life relies on us copying. The aeroplane's pretty impressive, isn't it? It's copying birds. And that's not denigrating people who invented aeroplanes. Very clever of them. The helicopter, that's a good invention. Copying seeds as they spin out of the trees. The most fantastic literature that you read still copies things that we experience or draws from things that we experience. Who did God copy? Where did he get his ideas from? Everything came from within himself. He is the only truly original originator. Are you beginning to get a little, a little insy idea of what God is like? Well then, think of this. Not very long ago this morning, we prayed to him. Think of that. We claim we spoke to him. We spoke to this God. Did you think who you were speaking to? No wonder the Bible says, rejoice with trembling. Isn't that the conclusion of this? Rejoice with trembling. Let's move on. Well, actually, let's move backwards, because you may notice we missed out the beginning of the sentence. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We haven't thought yet about in the beginning. Let's do that now. It's saying, before anything else existed, God was there. What is here put as beginning, clearly means beginning of the world. It doesn't mean the beginning of God. He was there before it all began. It's put beautifully in Psalm 90, which we've already heard. Before the mountains were born, or you brought forth the earth or the sea, sorry, the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Beginning here is not the beginning of God. There is no beginning of God. It's the beginning of the world, and it's telling us he was there beforehand. So let's try to do this. I've tried this before, but it's worth doing again. Imagine this room with all the people gone. That's pretty easy. Yeah, six o'clock this morning it would have been a room with all the people gone. Now imagine all the furniture gone. It's just a bare room. Now imagine that the, the room has gone, the building's gone. That's still fairly easy. You're standing on a load of soil, aren't you? And there's some houses around. But imagine the houses then gone. And the trees gone. And you're just on a bare landscape. Then imagine the clouds in the sky gone. And the sun gone. And you're just standing in darkness. Can't see a thing. But you can feel, and you feel the earth beneath you now gone. And you're just in empty space. And then imagine the empty space gone. Well, I don't even know what that means, actually. But nothingness. God was there when there was nothing. And go back into that nothingness, and then go further back into that nothingness, and then further back and further back, and however far you go, God was there. And we think of God as like us. And we think, well, if we were him, we'd do things differently, which we mean better. We've got no idea, have we, how intimidatingly different from us he is. But he's not just intimidating. If Islam were right, God would just be intimidating. They believe in this one God, always there, on his own. That's intimidating, but not personal and not knowable. 
But Islam isn't right. The Bible says God is intimidating. But there's good news too. What was God doing before the beginning? Can we get any idea from Genesis 1 what God was doing before the beginning? What was it like for him when nothing else existed? Well, Genesis 1 gives us little hints, and we have to admit they're only little hints. Let's see the little hints now. Uh, Verse 1 and 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Verse 1, God created. Verse 2, there's the Spirit of God. What's going on there? It's just a little hint that there's more to this God than might meet the eye in verse 1. There's the Spirit of God. Another little hint in verse 26. Verse 26. Then God said, let us make man. Let us. Who's this us? There's another little hint. Verse 1, in the beginning, God, it's, it's not the gods, it's not one of the gods, it's just God. But here we have a hint in verse 26. It's not quite as straightforward as that, because this God says, let us. Verse 26 again, then God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule. That's interesting. This creature man is made in God's image. And this creature is called man, singular. But then God says, let them, plural, rule. That's interesting. Man is singular and yet plural and in God's image. A little hint that this God, in the beginning God, singular, is also plural. One, but more than one. Same thing in verse 27. By the way, if you've got a new NIV, it makes a complete mess of this verse and loses this point. Sorry, you need need the original NIV. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. That is a correct translation. Made in God's image, this being made in God's image, it says he created him. But then it says male and female, he created them. Singular and yet plural. And that's the image of God. These are little hints. This one God is more than one person. Now, they're just hints. God isn't one lonely person on his own. Back when when there was nothing else, he wasn't some miserable God on his own or some unknowable God who could be happy being on his own. He wasn't on his own. Because move on in the Bible and the hints are made explicit. This God is three persons, Father, Son and Holy Spirit. And so we could move on to John 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. A verse deliberately echoing Genesis 1, verse 1, in the beginning, tells us right back there in the beginning, before space and time had been started, God wasn't on his own, because there was the Word. We also know as God the Son. Or, more familiarly, we know as Jesus. With God. More than with God, sharing glory with God, enjoying the love of God. I'll read you from John 17. 
You can turn to it if you like or just listen. John 17. This is a chapter where Jesus is praying to the Father. And he says, verse 5, And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. Right back when there was nothing, the Father and the Son were enjoying glory together and enjoying love together. John 17, verse 24. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory. The glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. A God who loves, a God who's personal, a God who's three persons. But we know more about what God was doing before the world began. I'll read you a couple more verses. Ephesians chapter 1. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ, for he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. There's something else God was doing before the world began. Enjoying being with his son, surrounded by the spirits, choosing people to save. Same thing in Titus. Let me read you chapter 1, verse 2. We have a faith and knowledge resting on the hope of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time. Can you understand the beginning of time? Before time began, God was making a promise. Before the beginning, when there was nothing, God knew his people. Fellow Christian, he knew you. And he loved you, despite knowing all your sin. He loved you, not because he saw there's a good one. That's one who's likely to trust in me. No, he knew you in your sin. And he loved you. And he chose you. And he made a promise to give eternal life. Who did he promise that to? There was no one around to promise, was there? Oh, yes, there was. There was his son. And he promised, son, I'm going to give you a people. And they will be yours forever. And they even planned together how that would happen. Through the son becoming a man to die on a cross. Back there, before creating the heavens and the earth, the Bible doesn't say God was planning how to create. You won't read that in the Bible. It doesn't say he was planning how to create. He had a bigger thing to plan. He was planning how to save you and me. How to save a people he loved. How to make his son the head of a people forever. What the Bible tells us about God before the beginning tells us he's an intimidating God. If you're not intimidated by God, you're a fool. I have to put that bluntly, because it's true. You're a fool. But it also tells us he's a personal God. He's a loving God. And he's a God with a plan for his people. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And all of this, doesn't it say, what an awesome God? All of this says, what an awesome God. All of this should be getting to us to do what we heard from Psalm 95 at the beginning. Come, let us bow down in worship. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker. All this should be the death blow to any idea 
of God as just there to help us and just there to fulfil our plans and just there to make our lives go successfully the way we want. All of this shows the Bible isn't some self-help manual to give you tips on how to be successful, how to achieve your dreams. It starts with God as the subject and it grabs you with him. But it does say you matter and have significance because of him. Only because of him. You have no significance and value if there's just eternal matter, no eternal maker. But because there is an eternal maker, the Bible says you do have significance in relationship to him. And so you need to ask yourself questions about how you relate to him. What you've heard about God this morning, what questions does it make you ask about you and him? Got any questions about you and him? I hope so. I'll give you three. I'll give you three that I reckon would be good to ask. Here's the first. Why did he make me? That would be a sensible question to ask. Why did he make me? Now, back in 1646, over 100 church leaders met in Westminster to put together one of the great statements of faith of church history. And although they looked really severe in their black cloaks, which they all seem to be dressed in black, they began their, their statement of faith with this really happy and positive statement. Why are we here? Why did God make us humans? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's why he made us, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Now, that is good and joyful news. God put us here to glorify him. And because he is love, we glorify him best by enjoying him. And he put us here to enjoy him, not just for a short while and then rot in the grave, but forever. Enjoying knowing him and worshipping him and being with him forever. That's good news. It's also a warning, though. It is a warning. We're here to glorify and enjoy God. If you haven't, you failed. You may be successful at making money, making friends, making good grades, but if you're here to glorify and enjoy God and you haven't, well, you failed. Here's another question to ask. What does he think of me? Is that a sensible question to ask about God? Maybe it's not a sensible question. You know, think of this. Scientists experiment on fruit flies because they breed quickly and so they can see generations. In fact, they've observed thousands of generations of fruit flies. Now, imagine the scientist and there he is and he's experimenting on thousands of generations of fruit flies. Does he wonder about each individual fruit fly? I wonder what that fruit fly thinks about. I wonder if it has a good relationship with its mother. I wonder if it's having a good day today. Of course it doesn't, does it? The scientist doesn't. Oh, the gulf between the fruit fly and the scientist is tiny compared with the gulf between us and God. And yet the amazing thing is, the Bible says he does think about you and me. What are his thoughts about you? Anger and love. Oh, there's a lot more to it than that, but those are the big ones. Anger and love. Let me, let me be more careful how I put that and more clear. If you're not safely trusting Jesus, if you're not belonging to him, God thinks about you anger at your sin, your disobedience, your wrong attitude to him. But he also thinks about you love. 
wanting you to turn to him, to depend on his son Jesus to come into his family. If you are safely trusting in Jesus, belonging to him, there's no more anger in God towards you because it's all been taken by Jesus and deflected from you as he died on the cross. And now all of his thoughts about you are love. The care, protection, compassion and discipline of a father who loves a child. This God who made the heavens and the earth, his thoughts about you are love. One more question that you ought to ask. How do I relate to this God? Here's a question to ask. What does God require of me? And I hope some of you can remember a fortnight ago where I answered that. Acts 20, 21. Turn to God in repentance and have faith in Jesus Christ. Repentance and faith. Turn and trust. I'm not going to go over all that again, obviously. If you weren't here, listen to it on the church's website. But this God who made everything, who is so intimidating, is also welcoming. And he says, turn to me, turn from your sins, trust my son Jesus, see you need him. Stop pretending that you're in control and cling to him. Like a little child, depend on him. Have you done so? Will you do so now? The God who made everything the God from whom everything comes, that we've just tried a little bit to think about, has a message for you. And it is, turn, turn from your way to my way and put your trust in my son and I'll welcome you and care for you and love you forever. That's unimaginable, isn't it? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Have you begun to get a little glimpse of what this God is like? How will you respond to him? You will respond. Everyone will respond. You can't help responding. There will be some sort of response. The question is, how, in what way, will you respond to him?